by the time it looks like war is inevitable and you have to deal with that potential fifth column, and particularly as the regime is getting more and more information that seems to them to amount to a colossal multi-layered conspiracy against them, rather than simply again deport these people, they think, listen, enough is enough. This is not working. And instead of simply deporting these people again, every time they stop, they stop somebody who doesn't have the appropriate documentation, they put them on the back of a lorry, they take them outside of town, they put a bullet in the back of their heads, and that's the end. Кто вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели, и при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Before we get to the show, I wanted to make an appeal to everyone that if you like what you hear on this podcast, please consider making a donation to support the show and its mission to bring critical voices about Eurasian history, culture, politics, and society. If you'd like to make a contribution, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on the Support the SRB Podcast button. Many of you have already generously contributed, and I want to say a big thank you for all your support. I'd also like to get listeners more involved in the show. So if you'd like to ask a guest a question after listening to this interview, please submit it at seansrussiablog.org under the Submit a Question tab. I'll then get the guest to answer one of the questions and include it on an upcoming podcast. Also, I'm always looking to hear listener comments and questions, so submit them at seansrussiablog.org as well, and I'll read some of them on the next podcast. I'm pleased to welcome James Harris to the podcast to talk about the Great Terror and how the Stalinist regime's threat perception drove it to use mass terror in 1937 and 1938. James Harris is a senior lecturer in modern European history at Leeds University, where he specializes in the history of Stalinism. James has published several books and articles on the Stalin period. His most recent book is The Great Fear, Stalin's Terror in the 1930s. Here's James Harris. According to archival records, over 681,000 people were executed and more than a million were sent to the Gulag during the Great Terror in the Soviet Union in 1936 to 1938. And this period is of roughly two years has been one of the most researched and most contested events in Russian history. Yet in your new book, The Great Fear, you write that it is, quote, among the most misunderstood moments in the history of the 20th century, end quote. Why is it among the most misunderstood? Well, I think the first thing that you need to remember is that the Bolshevik state was a profoundly secretive state. They only released the sort of information that they wanted people to have. And I mean, even when it came to achievements, they parceled things out very carefully. But when it came to things like political repression, you can imagine that they released almost nothing. And so what they what they did release when it came to the events of 36 to 38 were the transcripts of the, the three Moscow trials. And so for some quite considerable period of time, you know, the assumption was that the Great Terror consisted of this persecution of the old Soviet oppositions, the left and, and right oppositions in Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Bukharin, and so on. And it was in the 1960s that we, we started to get some more substantial material, but it was largely associated with Rousseau's de-Stalinization. So it was all about kind of blaming Stalin alone for the excesses associated with the cult of personality. And that's where Robert Conquest's book, The, 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 the Great Terror, 
comes out of Larson, this idea that um, it's all about Stalin accumulating extraordinary personal power. It's all sort of a personalized story. Stalin explains everything. And it's really been, you know, quite a slow trickle of information kind of about using, you know, from 67 to, to the, the opening of the archives, using what little information that we did have. And then, of course, you have the opposite problem after, after 91, which is you're, you're absolutely buried in information, millions and millions of files, which we're only really finally starting to, to digest properly. And since Conquest's book, which came out in, in 1968, this, continues to remain the grand narrative for the popular conception and understanding of the terror. But as you said, in the last 30 years, we've had this, you know, there were trickles of information. And then really, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a, a deluge in information. And, and many historians have produced uh, a lot of studies that question and, and to a large extent undermined Robert Conquest's main thesis, which is everything is personalized and blamed on Stalin, uh, or focused on Stalin, I should say. How have historians' understanding of the terror changed over the last few decades? In some ways, they have changed. And in many ways, it's really quite disturbing how little they've changed. I mean, obviously, the the great debate that we all love to teach, those of us who, who teach this period, is, is, is that of conquest uh, versus Arshgetian is... 1985 book, The Origins of the Great Purges, because, I mean, there you have really quite starkly different interpretations of the Great Terror, where conquest emphasizes this 20-year process of, of Stalin accumulating pers uh, personal power, which culminates in his uh, removal, uh, violent removal of the old Bolsheviks. So, uh, completing his personal dictatorship. And then, uh, you know, Getty came out in 85 and, and, and said, listen, you know, this state is, is chaotic. The, the, the apparatus does not respond well to the directives of the center. And the terror is really all about the, the center lashing out in anger at this, this unresponsive apparatus. And that kind of was a kind of, how should we say, political history debate between revisionists and, and totalitarian school where much of the rest of the debate at that time in the middle of the 1980s was between cultural and social historians. But again, it's sort of revisionism and, 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 and sort of traditional uh, scholars. But the key point here is that when the archives opened in 1991, we, we shouldn't really expect that, you know, sort of everything would change suddenly, because as I said, we had these kind of millions of files to, to go through. And what happens initially is that, is that both sides sort of tend to say, ha, you know, here's this document and that document that proves that I'm right. Um, and there's a kind of trickle of, of information that gradually shapes our perspectives. And I mean, if there was a, a single significant revelation, it was that the overwhelming majority of victims of the terror were not from the party and state's apparatus, were not from the political elite. The overwhelming majority of victims were ordinary Soviet citizens, workers and peasants. And of course, that quite considerably helped to undermine conquest's position. I mean, it made no sense if Stalin was focused on accumulating personal power, why he should kill hundreds of thousands of, of, uh, of workers and peasants. Um, but there's been all sorts of different elements that have been uh, developed by, uh, you know, different people over the last 20 years. There's been a huge amount of work on, you know, the relationship uh, between victims and perpetrators and, and, a, and a much more sensitive treatment to that issue where 
we don't now think of the uh, Stalin's sort of inner circle or the NKVD as the as the perpetrators and and everybody else as the as the victims. What we see is that there are all sorts of ways in which one can be a victim and a perpetrator at the same time. But I think when it comes to new grand narratives, what's striking to me is just how this conquestian view holds not just over the, the you know the, the public a grip on its on the public imagination but you know this idea of of kind of stalin as monster and basically to to challenge that grand narrative you know seems to be everybody kind of leaps on you and and and, and seems to be accusing you of, of of justifying stalin's crime so it's a tricky one to deal with so what kind of narrative would you provide as a as an alternative to the grand narrative that was that at the foundation of conquest's work well listen i am inclined to think that and i think i'm i'm not alone in this obviously that um to focus on stalin as monster is just a simplification too far i mean was stalin evil well you know almost cer- certainly stalin was evil but that doesn't really help us. It doesn't help, but we need to, what I seek to do is to explain why and, and how this re- regime set about to summarily execute three quarters of a million people. And obviously Stalin didn't do that by himself. So culpability runs a lot deeper and understanding the logic of that extraordinary violence is something really that demands that we look beyond the involvement of the the general secretary those you know certainly one can't ignore him it's not to put stalin at the back of the story but really just to, to, to see the story in its full complexity yeah several years ago i read a um uh, part of a speech by the head of Memorial at the time, and now the name is his name is um, escaping me. But he said something that always struck me as at the core of or addresses exactly part of what you're saying, and that is he said, "Well, yes, we can focus on Stalin, but he said the question that we have to really explain to ourselves as Russians is how do we explain the four million denunciations, and how do we explain how we did this to ourselves?" Um, and I found this a very interesting point, not in terms of trying to deal with the history and the historical question, but also the, the memory question and how Russian society comes to terms with this incredibly violent period. Well, the, the Russian historiography sort of seems to be rather out of sync with the, the European and, uh, you know, English language historiography. And it's not particularly surprising in the current political context where there seem to be an, an extraordinary number of historians and quasi-historians who insist that you know Stalin was a good guy, that that Stalin dragged Russia you know out of backwardness and exercised power through iron hand, and 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 yet had a, an ultimately benign effect on Russia. I mean, created this industrial and military superpower. And of course, that in the context of what is an authoritarian state in contemporary Russia. And of course, the many historians, rather more serious historians, are inclined to be very deeply troubled by that. And so the, the literature descends into a kind of, was Stalin a good guy or a bad guy? Whereas those issues are, are, are not particularly as interesting to us as they are to, to contemporary Russians. Well, let's dive into some of the things you develop in uh, your new book, The Great Fear. Now, your main analytical motor for understanding the terror in this book is this dialectic between threat perception, 
from the, the leader, Stalin leadership or the, the regime and information gathering. So how do they gather this information that shapes how they perceive the world around them? How has this relationship between threat perception and information gathering uh, historically rooted in the worldview of Russian leaders? Because you spend a bit of time kind of tracing this over the long durée of the country. Well, listen, the first the first chapter really is about explaining that Stalin is not the first Soviet leader to feel insecure. There was good reason for that to be built into the structure of Russian history. And part of it has to do with the, the state having thousands and thousands of miles of borders that are essentially porous. It's not that they have they don't have bodies of water and mountain ranges along their the whole of their, their borderland. And they're surrounded by uh, by states with which they are rather constantly fighting wars. So there are hostile powers on their borders. And they're not even particularly uh, secure about their, their relationship with their, their own people. So there are lots of examples of peasant rebellions, particularly between 1600 and 1800. And there's a consistent problem of palace coups. So, you know, these things really were a function of the, you know, the challenge of ruling an enormous population that is within a country that is surrounded by hostile powers. And Stalin and, and, and Lenin inherit that. Nothing changes, obviously, across 1917 to, to change the, the complexity of rulership. And then, of course, the Soviet state immediately has to, to fight a civil war and an intervention. So they're fighting essentially the old elites and those from the Russian population who followed them. But they're also fighting these invading foreign powers. So this kind of, in a sense, is already replaying what had been happening in the in the previous 900 years, and it was logical towards the end of the of the the, the civil war for the as these foreign forces were retreating and as the whites had been defeated for for the Soviets to think, well, listen, you know, just because we've we've beat them here doesn't mean that the threat is is finished, and so they were in the business of of then setting up an intelligence apparatus that would trace those threats. And I think the other thing to, to, to remember there is that ideologically, there's an element at play here too. As revolutionaries, they were very much students of past revolutions. They wanted to understand why the French Revolution failed, why 1848 failed, why the Paris Commune failed, and they were determined not to make the same mistakes. And perhaps the single most striking conclusion that they drew is that previous revolutions had not adequately anticipated the ferocity of the reaction to revolution. And they were determined that they would they were going to be ready for that reaction to the, the Bolshevik revolution. So they weren't particularly inclined to listen to their intelligence officers if they were told that, you know, everything was fine. Don't worry, the threat of war is past. The population is rested. They would tend to send these people back to the drawing board or sack them and get other people who would really identify the threat. And what we're talking about is a system that was consistently exaggerating the threats that the, that the regime actually was experiencing. This goes to one of the, the big questions that you set out to answer is that in 1937, there is no real threat, at least internally, 
to the Soviet regime, to Stalin's personal power. Yet at this very moment is when they lash out in this violence from the position that they are under threat, that there are conspiracies abound. So this threat perception and information gathering is is definitely shaping this perception, correct? That's really what the whole book is about. And, and uh, so to, to fill you in on the detail, but what we're talking about here is a whole bunch of different threats that come to coalesce in the minds of of the intelligence gatherers and of the of the Soviet leadership, so they are worried about what former oppositionists are doing. They are worried about, as Archgetty wrote, about the responsiveness of the of the apparatus to its will, and they're concerned about kind of local officials who seem to be publicly defending and supporting central policy while working to undermine it in private. That is the specter of the Drushnik, the two-faced official, the double dealer. They're concerned about non-Russian nationalities and their evidences of their uh, real and potential disloyalty in the event of war. They're concerned about the attitudes of the, of the working class and the peasantry, and of course the peasantry, you know, you still make the bulk of the population, have been through collectivization and famine. They're, they're, they're obviously not happy with the regime. And the, the regime has, in the course of collectivization and the famine, deported hundreds of thousands of what they call kulaks or podkolachniki, kulak helpers, wealthier peasants, those who resisted those processes to the labor camps of the gulag. And they generally got five-year terms. So by 1936... These people are returning from the gulag. The regime doesn't really know what to do with it with them because the, the the collective farm order has only just stabilized at that point, and to let the kulaks back worries them a great deal. So there are all sorts of different groups that they're worried about. But against the backdrop of all those various concerns, there are two things that are really important here. One is that though the regime had consistently exaggerated the the threat of war really from the end of the Civil War to the middle of the 1930s. With the rise of the Nazis and militarism in Japan, fascism in Italy, we, what we see is the, you know, the, the, the signing of the, the Anti-Comintern Pact in, in, in 1935 and the beginning of the Spanish Civil War in 1936, which is essentially a proxy war between the communists and, and the fascists. And Stalin, I think, quite rightly perceives that the hot war in Europe has begun. The Second World War has begun. And if we lose the Spanish Civil War, we're really giving a sign of weakness to the, to the fascists and they'll attack us. And Stalin isn't wrong because it, you know, that, that actually does happen. But they, you have to remember that the, the, they, they take a lesson from the First World War here, which is to say that they came to power in the course of a world war because the old regime, the Tsarist regime, had not adequately dealt with its internal enemies. And weak as it was, it was uh, completely undermined by war. And the Bolsheviks were determined that they would deal with potential fifth columns before the war began. But there's another part, and that is what we, we might want to talk about, is the, the impact of, of the, the murder of Sergei Kirov at the beginning of, 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 uh, of December 1934. Since you brought that up, there's one of the things I, I wanted to bring up in the sense that from 1928 to 1934, there is tremendous upheaval in, in, in the Soviet Union. You've already mentioned this collectivization, mass deportation, that there's a virtual civil war in the countryside between, in, 
the efforts to collectivize agriculture, uh, things that Lynn Viola has, has shown quite well. And then in 1934, there's this murder of Sergei Kirov in Leningrad. How does that murder change things? Immensely. Without that, the terror almost certainly would not have happened. But I mean, I think we need to kind of step back a bit. I mean, we know that, that Nikolaev was a lone assassin and was mentally unstable, was essentially not working sort of with any group. He was a loner. But what we have to remember here is that Stalin was uh, deeply concerned about opposition to him at the highest level. And I think this isn't really particularly well understood within the historiography to the, to the present day. So it's two things that are really happening there. One is, is that with the defeat of the oppositions, the left and right opposition in the 1920s, we're not talking just about Zinoviev, Kamenev, Trotsky, Bukharin, and so on. We're talking about their followers. We're talking about sort of tens of thousands of people. And generally, the regime let them back in. They, they, all they had to do was to sign a, a declaration that said, okay, you know, Stalin, you were right and we were wrong. And you, you could go back to a, a reasonably senior post. And Stalin, th- th- these people are being watched by the, the GPU, by the political police. And, and Stalin knows that they haven't uh, stopped criticizing him. And in fact, as the five-year plan runs into all sorts of trouble, and collectivization runs into trouble and famine, these left oppositions are increasingly, you know, they're having sort of conversations in which they are sort of saying, listen, you know, we've got to get rid of this guy. At the same time, even those who weren't oppositionists are occasionally critical of Stalin. So Nikolai Sirtsev, who was promoted from Siberian first secretary to place within the, as a a candidate member within the Politburo, comes out rather critically of, of Stalin in 1930. And at some point, he's then excluded from party discussions that he perceives that he should be a part of. And in an unguarded moment, he speaks rather critically of Stalin and the, the inner circle, and he's arrested. In the process of the investigation, it comes out that Sertsov is basically saying that there's a substantial part of the central committee that would remove Stalin if they had the chance. So this is kind of important background to the murder of Sergei Kirov in December of 1934 and the conclusion that Stalin draws that the guilty parties must be among the Zinoviovites. Stalin could have drawn the conclusion, of course, uh, given that, that uh, uh, Nikolaev's wife was Latvian, that there was a, f- a foreign angle, but he had enough kind of foreign intelligence to his hands that he thought that is, was very unlikely at that moment. Whereas he knew that there were a lot of left oppositionists who were interested in removing him. And the investigation, of course, if you think about what was happening in Leningrad, I mean, this, Kirov took over the, that organization from Zinoviev. And so there's a good reason to believe that there were a lot of Zinovievites within that organization. But here, to move on from the murder and the investigation, you have to remember that the, the, the regime had the habit of using torture in its investigations. And the logic of that really, perverse as it is straightforward, that is to say, Bolsheviks were in a revolutionary underground, and they were subject to pursuit by the the Tsarist secret police, and they knew not to keep records that would implicate them and their peers. So Stalin's assumption was that you couldn't expect to get material evidence of a counter-revolutionary crime. You had to rely on on what you obtained from interrogation. And what was happening then is that Stalin connected the the murder 
to Zinovievites and to Trotsky, who was at that, ultimately to Trotsky, who was at that point abroad. And then there was quite logically an investigation into security within the Kremlin. And it was discovered that, and I always confuse Evdokimov with Enukidze, who was the head of Kremlin security, had been giving passes to, to former left and, and right oppositionists. And they kind of developed a sense of, of sort of further conspiracies. So this investigation into the left oppositionists is gradually drawing connections not only between the former left and right oppositionists, but between the oppositionists and other forces that were hostile to the Soviet Union and wanted to overthrow it. Now, it's a very involved story, and I hesitate to keep on going uh, uh, on this vein, but let me take it just one step further. What we have to remember here is that a lot of the fascist powers, and I'm thinking particularly here of Germany and especially Japan, had networks of spies within the Soviet Union. They were kind of excited at the prospect, particularly the militarists, of invading and taking control of, of substantial chunks of Soviet territory. Um, and Stalin had a quite considerable intercepted correspondence from these groups. So the NKVD intercepted correspondence among the Japanese military attaches. And there, not only did they say, listen, you know, they thought, you know, we have to invade the Soviet Union and seize the Soviet Far East and, uh, and, and everything up to the Urals and, and do that soon. But when we do that, they said, what we really need to do in that process is to, to make contact with groups that are hostile to Stalin. So we need to make contact with the, the, the former oppositionists and we need to, to make contact with these non-Russian nationalities that are, that are hostile to Bolshevik power. When it came to the Spanish Civil War, it is then an issue of the connection between the Trotskyists and the, and the fascists, and particularly the Nazis. And there we have Trotsky, who is very much engaged in the Spanish Civil War, and really acting in a way that splits the, the Bolsheviks against other revolutionary left-wingers in Spain. As far as Stalin is concerned, Trotsky, if he's not practically working with the fascists, what he is doing is is helping them. And so you can see how they start to kind of connect the, the threat from the former oppositionists to potentially hostile non-Russians within the Soviet Union and, and then hostile capitalist powers. But it does raise a question, though, in the sense that, OK, if that was the, their perception of the threat, OK, then decapitating the, the Soviet elite the party elite and any internal party opposition, and then also breaking whatever connections that they have with foreign powers and internal desires to overthrow Stalin. But how do you explain then, as you started out saying, is that one of the biggest revelations that we've discovered in the last 30 years is that the vast majority of victims of the terror were regular, you know, workers, peasants, regular Russians. So how does the mass operations where the majority of people are executed fit into that picture? You know, one of those questions that we like to give to students when we examine them on this sort of thing is, you know, so, you know, what is the connection between the elite terror and the mass terror? And basically, they are connected, but they're separate. The point here is that the regime is desperately concerned about the threat of war. They're desperately concerned about these various groups that want to overthrow it domestically and, and, and internationally. And at the same time, they're concerned about the return of these kulaks, uh, in inverted commas, to the, the collective farm order. 
and they're concerned about the non-Russians who may not be loyal to them in the event of war. The story huh, is, is um, we can go back a bit here and think about, I mean, this is really the work of David Shearer and, and, and Paul Hagenlow that, that essentially I'm repeating here. I don't think I've, I've contributed anything new in the book. What they write about in their work is how the regime is in the late 20s and early 30s thinking really about crime, about not political crime, but crime crime. And they decide that a, a great way to, to deal with the problem of crime is to give people internal passports. And if you have an apartment and you have a job, you're allowed to live in a major city. And if you don't have a job, or if you have a criminal background, or you have an unfortunate class background, you are simply deported. And the regime is expanding the number of cities that are controlled in this way. And they're deporting ever larger numbers of people from cities. And periodically, they have these police sweeps, and they ask people for their documentation. And where you're not allowed to be living there, they deport you again. By the time it looks like war is inevitable and you have to deal with that potential fifth column, and particularly as the regime is getting more and more information that seems to them to amount to a colossal multi-layered conspiracy against them, rather than simply again deport these people, they think, listen, enough is enough. This is not working. And instead of simply deporting these people again, every time they stop, they stop somebody who doesn't have the appropriate documentation, they put them on the back of a lorry, they take them outside of town, they put a bullet in the back of their heads, and that's the end. And when it comes to the, the non-Russian nationalities, the mass operations against Koreans and, and Poles and Germans, the logic is different. There we're talking about, in the case of Poles, an interesting, there's an interesting background to that, because there were a lot of Poles uh, living in the Soviet Union, and many had lived, had always lived within the boundaries of the Russian Empire. But there was a, a great traffic of political refugees that were coming from Poland. And generally, when a Pole crossed the border and said, listen, I'm being persecuted by this right-wing dictatorship in Poland, they would take them in. But what the Polish authorities worked out was that they could send their own agents into the Soviet Union and get them to simply to, to say that they're political refugees but to actually be working for Polish intelligence. And what we're talking here what is about what is probably a very small minority of that group. But actually, you can see the, the effect. There's, it, it seems reasonably likely that there were such agents, because essentially, the from within the Comintern, a lot of Comintern agents and NKVT agents were being exposed in the middle of the 1930s. Someone, there, there were moles within those organizations. So the regime decided that it couldn't really work out. It did various surveys, and it couldn't work out who the, good, who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. So it basically held the entire group under suspicion. In the case of the Germans, there's a huge population of Germans in the Volga. But they were holding this consistent correspondence with their relations in Germany. And having experienced collectivization, having experienced the famine, they were saying, naturally, this is a really kind of horrendous place to live. And they were asking for help from from their German relatives. And of course, the, the regime anticipating a war with Germany holds this entire group as under suspicion. Now, of course, it, it is an appalling step to go from worrying about their loyalty to deciding to, to murder the lot of them. And we are talking about genocide here. And again, I mean, I think morally, that's you know something that, that needs addressing. And this is where we, we get back to this question about whether Stalin is a monster and whether that's helpful. And I think it's worth remembering that it's not Stalin alone 
who is the monster. Remember how I talked about the ideological element in the aftermath of the, of the Civil War, that they were concerned that previous revolutions had not adequately anticipated the ferocity of the reaction. And here I think you have to, to, to keep in mind that the regime believed so this, they were defending the revolution. And they're not defending their own power. They're defending the revolution. And if the revolution fails in Russia, it will set back the, the goal of liberating the working class of the world from the exploitation of capital. And so it wasn't that, you know, they were defending themselves or merely the, the working people of Russia. It was about world revolution. And that is natural. I don't mean to justify that in any sense. That is their pattern of thought. And it's, it's not in any sense that I seek to, to, to justify it, but that is what for them justified taking every possible measure to ensure that the revolution would survive. Now, I want to step back a bit because you, you brought up some things that I think are worth addressing. And that goes back to the Civil War as a formative experience. And here you have a really interesting discussion of the role of the Chaka and how the Chaka is formed. Who are the early agents of the Chaka? How they carry out the early Red Terror during the Civil War and police investigations in general. The efforts to rein them in after the Civil War and the lobbying on the one hand by, say, Felix Dzerzhinsky for more funding and more staff, and also the information that they're producing for the Soviet leadership on internal internal threats, mostly for the Chaka. How does the the way violence is used by the Chaka in the Civil War and you brought this up also in terms of the, the periodic use of mass operations in the 1920s to deal with common day crimes. What role does the police, the Chaka, and then the NKVD play as an influential factor in uh, information gathering and threat perception? Well, it's obviously a very important role. What I'm keen to do in the book, again, is to set Stalin's actions in their context. So part of what I want to draw out here is that the descent into that dictatorship was by no means inevitable, that the process of the civil war had been exceptionally violent. And in a way, there are those who sort of take the lesson from the civil war that violence works, that they would not have won the civil war were it not for the, the Red Terror. But you know, one of the things I'm keen to point out in the book is that there was a lot of concern about Red Terror. They didn't create the Cheka immediately, and, and they did so with considerable qualms. And when the Civil War ended, there were a great many within the Bolshevik leadership that wanted to bring the political police under the control of the Commissariat of Justice. And there is a kind of running battle between the Commissariat of Justice and the political police really throughout the 1920s and the Stalin period and other organizations, not just the, the Commissariat of Justice. So, for example, when the political police arrest foreigners, the Commissary for Foreign Affairs just leaps up and down and, and complains that the, the NKVD, the, the GPU, are complicating the foreign relations. And the Commissariat of Justice is forever complaining to the to the Politburo 
that innocent people are being arrested, at times executed, and that oversight from judicial organs is absolutely necessary. Now, in the immediate aftermath of the of the civil war, those calls for bringing the the, the NKV the the Cheka under control were particularly strong. But the Cheka was determined to defend itself, and Zerzhinsky, the leader of the Cheka, was convinced with many others within the, the Bolshevik leadership, that the time was not right. It was not that the, the civil war was over. The threat remained ever-present. We have to remember that after the, the civil war had ended, then the Soviet-Polish war began. Before the, the Just after the Soviet-Polish war was brought to a close, then we have the Curzon ultimatum. You know, there, there are all sorts of things that are happening domestically and internationally. You know, what are the whites doing? So what Zerzhinsky becomes convinced he needs to do is to demonstrate the seriousness of the continuing threat. And so the book goes through what Zerzhinsky does to, to convince the leadership that bringing it under the control of, of the, the, the commissary of justice is premature. And it, I mean, it creates an incentive essentially to exaggerate the, the dimensions of the threat. But I wouldn't em- overemphasize the cynicism there. I think it has to do with the aggression of their investigations and then how they interpret those investigations, that they convince themselves that the that the threat is is very serious. But there is a kind of internal incentive for the, the political police to to establish that the, that the threat is high and remains high. I mean, you can see that in any organization, right? I mean, the, the, it's the same is, is true for the CIA or for MI6 in, in Britain. Now, your book seeks to resolve a, a very important question, and this really goes to the heart of how we understand the terror. And you set this up early in terms of the, the divide between conquest work and J.R. Getty's work. And that is the paradox of the weak state, strong state as it pertains to the Stalinist system and the Soviet state in general. Have you come to a resolution to this paradox? It was, I think, back in 2003, Sheila Fitzpatrick asked me to to write a review essay for A Journal of Modern History, which came out as, was Stalin a weak dictator? And, you know, a lot of the ideas that I present there really are at the, at the core of this book published 13 years later. And I think that the whole idea of perception is incredibly important in resolving this debate. If you think about it, right, you have one side that emphasizes just how strong the state was and and, and finds Archgetti's arguments ridiculous. And, and then the revisionists who find this focus on, on political elites and the actions of, of Stalin alone or a few Soviet leaders to be equally r- ridiculous and simplistic. And so you have, you know, the conquestian strong state vision and Getty and others with a, with a weak state vision. And these two could not speak to one another, right? They were always able to, to cite evidence in support of their views. And essentially what I'm saying is you're both right. This is a strong state, but it's a state that perceives itself to be, that perceives itself to be under siege. And in that sense, it just it, it squares that circle. It explains how both sides could cite evidence in support of their views. So, and I hope that that focus on perception allows us to see a way out of that debate. And finally, what are the legacies of all of this in terms of Soviet information gathering, threat perception in Russia? What's the fallout of all of this? 
in the epilogue, I trace the aftermath of the terror. So one of the things I, I was keen to point out was that there was never a moment at which Stalin or anyone in the NKVD had a kind of whoops moment where they said, oh my God, you know, we've executed a lot of innocent people. What's striking is that they go from mass arrests and executions to drawing the conclusion that there were wreckers and spies within the political police who were arresting and executing innocent people on behalf of foreign governments. So they, they never kind of come to the conclusion that they made a mistake. Molotov says this in, in 1973, where he says that 1937 was, was necessary. And, and then, of course, if you think about it, the experience of wartime, and particularly Cold War, where you know, there continues to be this kind of knockdown, dragout struggle b- between the two superpowers, this idea that the West is out to get Russia or the Soviet Union is reinforced that it's done in open ways and clandestine ways. And, you know, certainly the Americans were doing this and that to attempt to undermine the popular support for the Soviet regime in the 50s and 60s. And so what, what I'm saying is that, you know, that there is a kind of reason to believe that this logic was sustained. And if you look at the training manuals for political police officers, KGB officers in the 1970s, when they go through the story of the early political police, it is the story of the glorious victories of the political police against the internal and external enemies of the regime. And when they write in these manuals about the, the Great Terror, it presents the, the political police not as the perpetrators of some horror, but as its victims. And what's interesting to me is that it's Putin who comes through the KGB training at the time when these manuals are current. Now, it's a complicated story, and I can't say that I know enough about contemporary Russia to draw any kind of firm conclusions. There's no question that by the 70s and 80s, Soviet expertise on America, for example, was improving immensely. So if you think about Georgi Arbatov in the Institutes of America and Canada, for example, or MMO, various sort of uh, institutions of, of higher education, they had a, a pretty good grip on international politics and, and American action. And yet within the, the political police, it does seem that there is this kind of continuity in a sense that the, the West is out to get them and a determination, much as you had in the, in the early 1920s, to justify the continuing power of that apparatus by playing up that threat. And what we can't know with any precision is the extent to which Vladimir Putin is caught up in that, is inclined himself to continue to exaggerate the threat that is presented by Europe or by America or by China, for that matter, to contemporary Russia. But you can see how it serves his purposes, right? and helps to to justify his authoritarian order and, and, and his power. That was James Harris, senior lecturer in modern European history at Leeds University and author of The Great Fear, Stalin's Terror in the 1930s. If you'd like to submit a question to James, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on Submit a Question. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review or recommend the show to your friends. 
You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Моя Марусечка, моя ты куколка, моя Марусечка, моя ты душенька, моя Марусечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.